0: the reading of Scripture this morning, which we'll find in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3 as we continue on in our exposition of uh, the Gospel of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ. Uh, This morning we come to the balance of chapter 3 beginning in verse 20. Uh, We'll read that whole section as we uh, come through it in the uh, exposition. But for now, let's begin with verse 20. Let us hear and attend to the word of God. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Continuing here in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, we come to the shocking conflict of Jesus' truthful messianic identity made public. And it well illustrates the summary formulated by C.S. Lewis. I know you've heard it before, that Jesus was either a lunatic, he was crazy, or he was a deceiver, he was a liar, or he was the Lord Christ as he claimed to be. He was the incarnate Son of God. And this summary as we have it here reflected in Scripture and as was uh, posed by Lewis in Mere Christianity, this summary is based on the, the logic, the reason of propositional truth claims revealed in the New Testament Scriptures. And we can't avoid propositional truth claims. I know there are many who don't like them, who don't like to be backed into the corner by them. And they look for ways to wiggle out from them. In Jesus' day, they were doing the same thing. But here we find that we're face to face with Jesus' self-identity. Who Jesus claimed to be and who he is. And also with the charges of rejecting his self-identity as the son of God and the son of man. So we're still contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Chapter 3 here as we've tried to give a sort of a summary theme to each of the chapters in Mark's gospel. uh, Here in chapter 3... As the gospel source being uniquely Son of God. We found that in chapter 1 and we're carrying it forward. So as the source of the gospel being uniquely Son of God. Jesus Christ creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. And and that's the theme that I want you to see is woven through this chapter. As we look in verses 1 through 6 previously. A new covenant life starts with a saved life. By supernatural power over death. We must be saved. We must be rescued. That's what salvation means. Our uh, being saved from the guilt of our sin. And this includes both original sin's results and personal responsibility for actual sins. And in verses 1-6, through six, remember there was a man with a withered hand. And Jesus had compassion on him. We're not told that his hand came from any sinful activity on his part, but that Jesus loved him and had compassion on him and healed him because he was suffering the results of original sin's In this world, the fall, you and I also face those things. We may have accidents, we may have diseases, we may have difficulties of other kinds that are not directly tied to some particular sin. But it's the results of original sin in the fallen world. But Jesus saves us from the original sin's results. And then we read where the personal accountability for actual sins, the Pharisees were plotting to murder Jesus. There is personal accountability for actual sins. And then in verses 7-12 through 12, we went on with a new covenant life. Not by human bloodline, not your people, not where you're from. But by the Holy Spirit's adoption through new birth being a supernatural power greater than unclean spirits. Remember here Jesus went down again to the shores of the Sea of Galilee and the crowds pressed around him, uh, all around him. And we're told literally that people came from every direction. From north, south, east and west even outside the borders of, of Israel or, or, or Judea, Judea at that time. They came seeking Jesus and, and Jesus shut up the unclean spirits because he wouldn't receive their testimony that he is the son of God. And remember how it was described that they, those who were possessed of demons came and they screamed out and they fell down and Jesus wouldn't let them make a scene because he would not be validated by unclean spirits. And there's some lessons there for us. We talked about it at the time. And I've said to you many, many times, the only spirit you need to be concerned about and preoccupied with is the Holy Spirit. And now, uh, last week, verses 13 through 19, a new covenant life commissioned under 12 apostles superseding the old covenant, 12 tribes of the patriarchs of Israel. And we talked about the significance of uh, Jesus choosing out of his uh, disciples 12 whom he would commission officially and send apostolically. And we talked about those things and how that was significant in in terms of what Jesus was doing for his salvation mission, for the new covenant, and for the kingdom of God. And now this morning we come to the balance of the chapter, uh, verses 20 through 35. And don't get nervous because it's a a more extended passage. Uh, It's much narrative here. There's some very important things that we need to pay attention to. Here in verses 20 through 35, a new covenant royal family of faith Confessing by the witness of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is divine Savior and Lord who supernaturally destroys the kingdom of the Satan. I hope you see how it's building through chapter 3 and how we now come to this uh, new covenant royal family. More than an earthly family. That is very explicit here in, in the narrative that we have and in what Jesus says in conclusion. A new covenant royal family of God supernaturally is the family of God by by salvation and faith, confessing by witness of the Holy Spirit's transformation that Jesus is divine Savior and Lord. How do you know Jesus is not a liar? How do you know Jesus is not a lunatic? By the witness of the Holy Spirit, we confess He is divine Savior and Lord, as He said He was. His self revelation, His self attestation, and He supernaturally destroys the kingdom of the Satan, the world. The fallen world, the world in rebellion against God, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus is our Savior. We look at verses, well, the end of verse 19, we actually need to see because that kind of carries forward that they went into a house after Jesus had uh, chosen the twelve and called them by name. and So they, they went into a house. And then we pick up in verses 20 and 21. As they were in the house, remember we said there was a house in Capernaum that someone who was unnamed gave to Jesus to use as a ministry station. That house has come up two or three times, hasn't it? Here it is again. And think of that. that Whoever it was, we don't know whose house it was. Some suggest that it was Mary's house. Maybe Joseph built it. We don't know. It's, we're not told. It's not named. But it was given to Jesus for a ministry station. And it's repeated uh, several times here. So they were in the house. And then in verse 20, when the multitude came together again, uh, they could not so much as eat bread because they were just... Constantly um, pressing Jesus and and wanting attention and wanting care from Jesus. Verse 21, and when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? Here we have uh, Jesus' truth claims about himself and the new covenant gospel truth. And we see that it can even divide families based on Christian belief or unbelief. Here they are being pressed about, no time even to rest as they're trying to just get a, a bite. And then his people. Uh, there's some dispute about who this means. It seems the most likely understanding is that it would be his uh, more immediate family. Uh, it could be uh, that there were children that Joseph had from a previous marriage, but that's not told in Scripture. It could be that Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus. I think that's very likely. Or sometimes this term is used in a little broader sense of cousins. We know John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus. He had other cousins. But they're not named for us. Later on in the passage, we're told that it was even his mother who was with them. That signifies to us that this was more immediate family. And they come and by a misguided unbelief, they believe Jesus has become mentally unstable. And so his family members seek to protect him. They came out. They came out deliberately. What we're told is they were not originally there. We don't know where they were, but they were not a part of this original group that's thronging the Lord Jesus. They come intently and purposefully to lay hold of Him. That means they came with a purpose and an intent that they were going to rescue Him. They were going to take Him away. They were going to remove Him from this because they thought He had lost His mind. He was out of His mind. Now we need to be careful We're not told a whole lot more, although when we come to the end of the chapter, there's more told. And I think we must be careful not to rush to judgment about these things. I know this is unsettling. As a matter of fact, what comes next is even going to be more unsettling to us. This is a difficult passage of Scripture. Often family compassion is misguided by misbelief. Not necessarily unregenerate people in our families. Sometimes Christian families are divided over difficulties and disputes about what we believe. doesn't mean that they're not Christians. You may have in your family, as I do in my family, extended family, those who don't necessarily agree with every point of doctrine. Certainly, uh, the doctrine of baptism comes up. I have beloved family members who just don't get it and think that you can only baptize based on profession of faith. And I, I've explained my views regarding what I think is consistent in Scripture about the covenant promises of God. I've assured them that we don't believe that the waters of baptism wash away sin, but we believe that where the Holy Spirit is operative, even secret and unseen, it manifests itself in profession of faith. But baptism doesn't cause that, so baptism may be administered before that based upon the, the the best covenant hope and promises of God, but not a presumption. We know there must be the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But we have good hope in that. And so oftentimes the, the doctrine of baptism and its application in covenant baptism can be a, a point of disagreement. I've tried to say to uh, those, not only in my family, but in my extended friends and minister friends uh, who are... Um, hold to what we call credo or or, um, uh, believer's baptism, that, you know, we agree on more than we disagree. Let's try to focus on some of those things. But I am stalwart and I am convinced and I will, as long as God gives me opportunity, continue to practice visibly and and openly the covenant hope of of, uh, covenant baptism of covenant children. But sometimes these things do bring disagreement. Uh, there are other doctrinal disputes. We know that there are a number of them. Uh, uh, our brother uh, and elder Jan prayed this morning about the elect of God. We're not bashful about that. Get, that gives us hope in the ministry and the call of the gospel that God, as Jesus said, uh, the Lord, the Heavenly Father had sent him and he will lose nothing of those whom the Father has given him. But he's appointed a means to that end. Even the foolishness of the preaching. So we continue to preach. We continue to believe. We don't hide from those unsettling and challenging doctrines of Scripture. Many look for some kind of uh, more spiritual experience. And we often are struggling with that from the standpoint of people wanting some kind of ecstatic experience emotionally. And we say, no, that doesn't validate your salvation. That doesn't validate your faith. Let's look to what Scripture says. Scripture warns us about not being taken away with those things. Others are wanting to demonstrate to the world that they're better off than the world, that God loves me more than than God loves the world, so He gives me all this stuff and it's prosperity. That's what proves the faithfulness of God. But the Scripture says, no, it is not. Faithfulness proves the faithfulness of God. And so we often find ourselves in conflict, in dispute, in disagreement. And when Jesus' family members come here confused and distressed and thinking that he's lost his mind, I don't want us to rush to judgment. That does not mean they were unregenerate. I can't tell you if they were or they were not, but I don't want us to rush to judgment on the matter. And so let's be careful to really focus on the main things of Scripture. I really love that passage in the Westminster Confession that talks about the plain, the perposcuity, the plain meaning of Scripture. There are hard things to understand in Scripture. But the things that relate to us and our salvation are clear enough for everyone to know. The claims that Jesus made to be the Son of God and the Savior are indisputable. People try to turn them upside down. They try to wiggle out from under them. They try to turn them around and and say that Jesus didn't claim to be the Son of God and divine. But He did. It's indisputable. And we must continue to bear clear witness to that. So the things that are clear from the Word of God, the meaning of the Gospel, the testimony of Jesus... Those things we must continue to um, declare uh, clearly and deliberately. So look at now verses 22 through 27. We get into an even more difficult uh, passage here. And the scribes, the the doctors of the law, who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to uh, them in uh, parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against Satan uh, himself, against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So, Jesus' truth claims about himself and the New Covenant Gospel are often intentionally misrepresented by association with religious and philosophical mythologies. That's what I want you to see here. That these Jerusalem scribes, these doctors of the law came down and they tried to discredit Jesus in his claim and in his works using mythology and superstition. They said, he has Beelzebub. Now, this is not a biblical reference to Satan. Satan. This is a mythological coming out of uh, Chaldean mythology. They use this uh, roughly meaning the the dung god or the god of the flies or whatever. It was a very derogatory term. But it is not a theological term. It's not a biblically warranted term. It comes out of superstition, mythology, and philosophy. Isn't that how people often try to discredit the Lord Jesus? Let us be aware and let us be careful about that. Jesus summoned these Jerusalem scribes to himself with authority. He's challenging them. He knows what's going on. They weren't saying this to him. They were saying it like they've been doing behind his back. That's happened repeatedly. Jesus calls them to task. He summons them. And he challenges them about their mythologies and their superstitions by using parables. But you see, parables that Jesus uses are not mythologies. They're not myths. They're not fables. They are Stories of heavenly meaning using earthly ideas to convey to us and to reveal to us God's truth. Actually, the the term parable, you probably know, means to bring alongside of. It's a parallel story, if you will. It's a parallel story. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It's a revelation from God. Jesus uses parables and he counters myths and superstitions using God's truth and giving it to us in ways that we can understand it. So Jesus reveals His salvation mission that it's opposite of cooperating with Satan. Far from cooperating with Satan, the opposite of cooperating with Satan, it includes His invading, binding, or dominating, and finally searching and seizing Satan's house or Satan's kingdom. And I don't want you to miss that at the conclusion there. I mean, this is what Jesus expounds about. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he has an end. The opposite is true, he says. No one can enter a strong man's house. Jesus entering... The kingdom of Satan, the fallen world, and and, and Satan's domain, claiming that he has authority, claiming to lead the rebellion against God in this fallen world. Jesus has come into this world. He's entered the strong man's house. He's entered Satan's kingdom. And what does he do? He binds him. He dominates him. He destroys him. He came to defeat the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. We're told in Scripture he did so. And in so doing, he plunders. He thoroughly searches and seizes out. There's nothing left in Satan's house or kingdom that can threaten the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Why? Because Jesus trounced them down. Jesus broke through them. He invaded them. He has brought uh, the, the devil on a leash. He has bound him. And he will finally and fully destroy him. I've told you many times, the devil, think of the devil as a mad dog on a leash. Yeah, you get too close to him, you're going to get mauled. I believe the devil is a true, real, created being. And I believe that the scriptures tell us that Jesus has invaded his kingdom. Jesus has bound him. Jesus has defeated him. And Jesus has thoroughly and is thoroughly plundering. He's searching and seizing everything. He's tossing and turning. He's leaving nothing undone. To bring the final and full defeat of the Satan and the fall of his kingdom. That's our hope, beloved. That's our assurance. That's what Jesus is claiming in this parable. He's giving us heavenly meaning with an earthly story that we get. We we get the idea. We see it on the news, don't we? We see it paraded to us in all kinds of uh, movies and television scenarios of where somebody's looking for that uh, special chip that has the code on it. And they come into a, a, a somebody's house and the house has been thoroughly turned upside down, trashed, thoroughly plundered. Nothing left undone. The walls have been torn down. The floorboards have been uh, torn up. The ceiling tiles have been pulled out. That's the image. That's the idea of the thorough plundering here. The thorough searching and seizing. Nothing left untouched or undone or unsearched. That's what Jesus is saying that he's doing to the devil in his kingdom. So don't lose hope in the church and in the gospel. As I've told you many times, of what is Jesus the head? He is the head of His body, the church. Of what is Jesus the bridegroom? He is the bridegroom of His bride, the church. Of what is Jesus the King? Jesus is the King of His kingdom, the church. Do we lose hope of the church? The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, I've entered the strong man's abode, His house, His kingdom. I've tossed it. Nothing will be left undone or unsearched. Don't you fear, don't you doubt. So, Jesus' parables are not myths or moralisms about how to be better people. Please let us be careful about that and the misapplication of Scripture that Jesus' parables somehow tell us how to do self-help. The gospel is not self-help. The gospel is Christ's help. And so, the parables are not moralisms about how to be better people. There are theological truths about the mysteries of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, revealing the new covenant gospel of salvation and what Jesus has done and is doing and will finish doing defeating the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, that brings us to verses 28 through 30. I told you things get deeper as we go on into this passage. Verse 28 through 30. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Yeah, this gets the the most heavy and challenging part of this this passage and and really one of the most challenging uh, in all of Scripture. Jesus' truth claims, pronounced here as a solemn warning about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And and Jesus, and in parallel passages, he says, look, all kinds of blasphemy will be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Father. You ever use God's name in vain? uh, Commandment saying, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Audibly? Mentally? I I have. I'm sorry. I'm I'm ashamed to say, I'm not going to lie to you. But all blasphemies against the Father will be forgiven. Blasphemies against the Son. People routinely, you hear it. We are we're inundated with it. Jesus, Christ. You hear it all the time, don't you, on television. We just got, have gotten numb to it. I want to know why they don't use somebody else's name. Why don't they say, oh, Beelzebub. I don't ever hear that. Have you ever heard that? I've never heard that on television, I don't think. Oh, Beelzebub. No, it's all about Jesus. or Christ. Blasphemy is against the name of Jesus. He says we'll be forgiven. Blasphemy is against the Son. But then he says here, the last thing against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What does that mean? Well, once again, Jesus speaks with divine authority or power about the forgiveness of sins. Remember how this was all kicked off in the beginning of Mark's gospel, that Jesus claimed to have authority on earth to forgive sins? That you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin? Take up your bed and walk. And only God can forgive sin. That's right. Jesus said, I can forgive sin because I'm God. Jesus said, I can give a new Sabbath, meaning and give you better rest than the Old Covenant Sabbath because I'm God. Because I'm the Creator. I gave you the first Sabbath. I'll give you a better Sabbath. You see, they knew better then than we do now. What Jesus was claiming. Jesus claims to forgive sin because He's God. Well, Jesus also claims that there will not be forgiveness of those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That's That's heavy. So the exception that Jesus singles out here is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That means maliciously cursing the Holy Spirit and his work to be from the devil. Now let me be careful here. There may be people who deny in this context. There are some people that are struggling about what Jesus is doing and what Jesus says. They're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're in doubt or they have little faith or they may be unregenerate. There are lots of people like that. There are lots of people that question and are uncertain about some things that the Bible reveals to us. But they're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Very specifically, Jesus says, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is defaming the person who works the Holy Spirit and saying that is the work of the devil. And so the unforgiveness that is associated with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit includes eternal judgment. Did you see what Jesus said? Assuredly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, attributing the person and work of the Holy Spirit to the devil, never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation or eternal judgment. So this is the scope of what Jesus is dealing with here, not only in his power to forgive sins, but also in his judgment against not forgiving and the theological reasons are given even as we go back in the passage to verse 22 and verse 30. Why? It specifies a progressive, persistent expression of unbelief saying that Jesus was demon possessed. Look at verse 30. Because they said, this is the doctors of the law, the scribes who came down, because they said he has an unclean spirit, they said Jesus is of the devil. They said the works of the Holy Spirit that were manifest through what Jesus was doing, attributing it to God the Father and to His salvation and to His promises and His revelation in the parables that He gave about His kingdom, His coming to save the lost. They said, it's of the devil. And the language that is used here and the the force of of the language that is used indicates a persistent and a progressive hardening of their hearts going deeper and deeper into their resistance and into their hatred and into their malicious attempt to discredit Jesus. And what they're saying, as Jesus says in verse 30, is he's demon-possessed. He's of the devil. So you see, it's different if you have questions about Jesus. If there are those, even family members and people that you love or neighbors or friends that say, well, I don't know about Jesus. I think Jesus was a good man. That's not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's not a confession of faith, but it's not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But when there are those in our, in our time, we've heard them, who rise up boldly and brazenly and they say that Jesus is of the devil. Uh, that's the thing that Jesus is talking about here. I think it's been wisely observed with biblical assurance that anyone who is concerned about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not in that spiritual condition. Because the spiritual condition that Jesus describes here and that is elsewhere expressed in Scripture is a calloused hardening of someone so deeply and uh, determinedly to deny and to despise God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but chiefly to attribute that the Holy Spirit is the work of the devil. And we need to be very aware and careful about that. We don't need to rush to judgment. But at the same time, we need to know that the doctrine of reprobation is a true doctrine in Scripture. In Romans chapter 1, it's referenced. Our Westminster Confession in chapter 5, section 6, talks about it. And so there is this manifestation of a spiritual hardening. You might think of Pharaoh, for example. How he increasingly became hardened by the signs that, that God showed. The means that God used to soften the hearts of some were used to harden the hearts of others. And here, Jesus and all that He's done, and and what is it that these doctors of the law say? He's of the devil. And that's why Jesus is saying this is so deep and so disturbing and so unsettling to us. But let's not stop there. Look at verses 31-35. through Then his brothers and his mother came. And standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother? Who is my uh, brothers? Or who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So Jesus' truth claims identifies the greater faith family of God in the new covenant gospel. And this is what Jesus is saying, even in reference to his earthly family. Members of Jesus' earthly family were told, including his mother here. That's why I was saying it's it's immediate family that's being dealt with. They were calling and they were seeking Jesus. They were wanting to get his attention. When they came, initially... They came in tent because they thought he had lost his mind. They thought he's beside himself. He he must be sick. There's something wrong. Something is not right here. But they couldn't get to Jesus because of all the crowd. And so now after this interaction and uh, this uh, going on with the uh, doctors of the law, we come back and we find that they've worked their way up as close as they can get. And they're trying to send a message seeking him. They're wanting to get his attention. They're wanting him to come with them because they're wanting to protect him. They're motivated out, out of compassion. And so they're not necessarily unsaved or unregenerate. I'm not about to say that Mary, the mother of Jesus, in this instant, was unsaved or unregenerate. I think she had weak faith. Maybe she was carried along with the others, Jesus' half-brothers and sisters, perhaps, cousins. We don't know who all was a part of this entourage. We're told they were family members. I don't doubt that they loved Jesus. Do you doubt Can you doubt that Mary loved Jesus? Can you doubt that Mary was a believer from the Magnificat? The handmaiden of the Lord? I don't doubt at all that Mary is a regenerate believer. But her faith is suffering and it's weak here. It may be impacted by others around her. And Jesus is not scorning her. And I think what we really need to recognize, I just don't want you to miss it, is that neither Mary nor the the families, the brothers and sisters of Jesus... They're not guilty of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit because they're struggling with this. That should give us consolation. Mary and Jesus' family members are coming, seeking Him and saying, we've got to get Him out of here. But they're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Don't lose that. Don't miss that connection. Because, beloved, we have many loved ones that we know of, that we don't see eye to eye with, that may not have it straight about everything about Jesus. But at the end of the day, they're saying Jesus is their hope and their salvation. He's their light and their salvation. Let us not rush to judgment about some of these things. So Jesus identifies the greater family of God. It's a faith family by doing the will of God. That means saving faith. That's what Jesus said. He said, this is the will of God. It's manifested in saving faith. That's why Jesus came. And look at what he says here. You want to know who my family, my mother, my brothers are? The ones who do the will of God. There's a greater family. Jesus isn't scorning his earthly family. But he's saying there's a greater family that we need to acknowledge and we need to recognize and of all things, we need to pray and seek that we are in the greater faith family of God. Are you in the greater faith family of God this morning? Are you... Brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you part of that faith family of even the Virgin Mary? I don't believe in perpetual virginity of Mary. I believe she had children with Joseph after Jesus was born. I believe he had half brothers and sisters. That's my view from as much of the scriptures as I can understand. But the point of of it is this. Those earthly family bounds are limited. It's, It's a challenge to us. I'll tell you how I deal with that. We love our earthly families. And it's hard to think about them not being all saved and being in the family of God. But this is what I do know. There is a greater faith family of God. And it is my prayer. And I hope and pray as long as I have a mind and breath, it will be my prayer for loved ones to be in the greater faith family of God. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not disavowing his earthly family. He's saying there's a greater family of which we all need to seek. And so I want to leave you with a a couple of scriptures there. Uh, I've added one to the study notes, but uh, Jesus' salvation purpose transcends earthly relationships of family ties, but also sanctifies new covenant families with better promises by the witness and power of the Holy Spirit to the gospel with a fuller and clearer testimony of God's will revealed through the person and the work of Jesus Christ by whom Christian believers are made co heirs. We're in the family of faith. We're in the royal family. We're co heirs in the royal family of the kingdom of God. And this is what the Apostle Paul wrote For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And he means that, not that they're not male and female, but they have legal standing. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit, not the spirit of the devil. Not the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, but you, re- spirit, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. The most intimate of our, uh, of our relationships is the Creator, our Heavenly Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So changing from our legal standing to our filial relationship. We're beloved little children of God. And if children, then heirs, going back to our legal standing. We have a right and standing in the royal family, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. And then Paul goes on in chapter 12 of Romans. I appeal to you all therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing You all may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What did Jesus said? What did Jesus say? Those who do the will of God, they're my brothers and sisters and mother. That we may prove the will of God in our worship of Him, from regenerate hearts, from being transferred into the, the kingdom of God and into the family of God by faith, and we show by our spiritual worship what is good and acceptable and perfect in testimony to who God is. And then I want to leave you with this passage. I didn't put it in the notes, but from John chapter 6, this is what Jesus said. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the promise that we have. That's the promise of Jesus' salvation that's greater than our sin. That's the promise that is greater even than the warning against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If I've said you have a conscience issue, if you're troubled, if you're concerned, if you said I've taken God's name in vain, I've said harsh things about Jesus in my past, I have discounted the Holy Spirit and said I don't believe that stuff. That's not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If you have a concern in your soul... Am I in the kingdom of God? Am I in the faith family of God? This is what Jesus says. This is the will of God that you believe on Him whom God the Father sent and He is able to forgive your sins and to save your soul for everlasting. So that's the the Christ we celebrate. That's the, the claims of Scripture that we press upon the soul and upon the mind knowing that the Holy Spirit validates the truth of God the Holy Spirit doesn't witness to error the Holy Spirit witnesses to the truth that Jesus is the way the truth and the life our salvation is in him we'll continue on in the gospel of Mark uh, coming to chapter 4 next time